So have you ever had a day where everything seemed to go wrong? It was just, you step out of bed and it's just right on your glasses, crunch. Boom, I gotta look at that one because our other one's, oh, all right now. Um, so your, the refrigerator just died as well. You get up, the dog just did his business on your floor. There were new carpets too, that's, that's tough. Uh, the, the toilet overflowed because your kid uses way too much toilet paper. Anybody had that happen before? Your HVAC won't kick on, and your car battery is dead as a doornail, so you can't even run out and get anything to fix it. I'm sure we've all had a day or two like that. One of those days where you just want to hit the reset button. Maybe if you just walk back to your bedroom, lay down, take a nap, get up, it'll just all be over, and it'll all be back. We just hit the reset button. Everything is better. Sadly, that's not how life works. Uh, Jesus is about to have a day like this with his disciples. Just like one thing after another. They just continue to blow it over and over again. And I've entitled today's sermon, Disordered Disciples, because of that reason. It seems like everything they're supposed to do, they do the exact opposite. Yet Jesus continues to use this motley crew to reach the world with the gospel, despite their failures. And I, I pray that this account gives you hope like it gives me hope. Uh, that God can use even imperfect persons like ourselves that continue to blow it, continue to do the wrong things, continue to not do what he wants us to do, continues to learn slowly at times. I pray that we are able to learn through these lessons and grow through that and have faith that God can even use us. Before we dive in, let us just say a quick prayer about today's message. Lord, Lord may you preach through me, speak through me, God. Open up our hearts and, and our eyes and our minds and our ears to, to hear and, and see your word. God, to, for it to, to not just enter our, our brains, but also our hearts. May it change us from the inside out. Thank you for your living and active word that you have given us. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. And thank you for your, your church that we can gather in and worship you by lifting up songs, worship you through listening to the word, worship you even through fellowshipping with one another. We love you and thank you. Amen. Today we're going to see four ways that Christ has called us to work for Christ and through Christ and in Christ. The first is, number one, we must work through Christ's power. We must work through Christ's power. So verse 37 in Luke 9, we'll start with start there. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, the great crowd met him. So we've just seen this mountaintop experience. If you were with us last week, if not, I'll go ahead and tell you, that was the transfiguration. Jesus shone in all of his glory. And so Peter, James, and John got to see that along as the only, the inner three disciples got to go up with Jesus and see this amazing thing. Moses and Elijah are with him. Just this incredible mountaintop experience. And now they're coming down the mountain, and real life hits them right in the face. You ever had a good mountaintop experience? Definitely not like the Transfiguration. You ever had a good mountaintop experience? You go to a conference or a convention, and you come, and then that day we talked about at the beginning kind of hits you. Everything is going wrong. That's how life works sometimes. And so Jesus and his disciples, three disciples that went with him, come down, and there's a crowd gathered, which we've seen that just over and over again in the book of Luke. Just crowds are always gathering around Jesus, and they always want something from Jesus. It's not just, oh, we just want to hang out with Jesus. No, it's like, Jesus, what can you do for us? And this scene's no different. But before that, we see it's not only bad because there's this huge crowd, but, but there's some arguing going on. Mark nine fourteen lets us know that the nine disciples that were left behind are arguing with the scribes in the crowd. So it's not a really pretty picture to come down from the mountain to see and just when things don't seem to get any more hectic, a man comes up and starts to question Jesus and ask him for something, which brings us to verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth 
and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So this man from the crowd cries out and begs Jesus to heal his son, his only son. And he, he describes him as being possessed by an evil spirit, a demon that convulses him, makes him foam at the mouth, shatters him. And Mark 9, 18 even lets, him, lets us know that he's rigid as well at times. But Mark also lets us know that there's an important preposition in this interchange. Luke doesn't give us this part. It's the beauty of the Gospels. They're synoptic. When you read them all together, you get different accounts, and you're able to put the whole account together, which is really amazing. Mark says this, but this is the Father speaking, but if you can do anything, this is to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, I love that. I just love, would love to hear the tone in that. Uh, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The father likely struggling with doubt after watching Jesus' nine disciples were up behind have an impotent interchange with this demon. We'll talk about that in a minute. Cannot seem to muster enough faith in Jesus at this point. He's struggling. Jesus calls him out on that. He doesn't just say, oh, it's okay that you're doubting me. He calls him out on that. But I love the humility in this man's statement. What does he say? I believe, help my unbelief. Don't you love how contradictory it seems? I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever been there, friends? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, but I know I don't believe as well as I should that you're going to come through in this. I mean, I believe that you created the heavens and the earth, but I'm not sure you can help me get that job. Um, I, I believe that you saved my soul, but I'm not sure you can heal my child. I, I believe, you know, there's all these things to help my unbelief. Now, obviously, we don't always know those things are going to work out. But do we have faith that God can? And that's the issue. Sometimes God will say no. Sometimes it's going to be later. Sometimes you're going to have hard answers like that. Sometimes he doesn't heal your mom or your dad or your grandmother or your grandfather. But do we have faith that he can? And that's what God wants. He wants our faith that we can. But the question is, when we get to that point, I believe, hell, my unbelief, and we feel that just weakness in our flesh that, that we know God can do it, but man, we're just struggling through it. What do we, what do, we do at that time? Who do we turn to? And this man turns to who you should turn to. He turns to Jesus. Help my unbelief. Jesus honors and blesses that type of humility. He doesn't bless a false sense of assurance like the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, the things you can name and claim whatever, and that you are good, and that everything happens because of how great you are and how strong your faith is. God doesn't honor that. That's not real. No, God honors a humble man who drops to his knees and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, heal this person not because I'm that great, not because my faith is better than anyone else's, but because I know you are better and you can help me. When considering this interchange, I thought it might be helpful for us to learn a few practical ways that God uses to increase our faith. If we get to that point, obviously we turn to Jesus, but, but how do we turn to him exactly? And number one, through reading the Bible. Through reading the Bible. I know that sounds like a super easy answer. It's that church, you know, Sunday school answer, read the Bible, love Jesus, this kind of well, this actually, the Bible teaches us this in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what? The Word of Christ, which is the Bible. God uses His Word to convict, empower, teach, and grow believers in faith. If we have, sol if we have solid faith, then we must spend, if we want to have solid faith, we must spend time in His Word and allow it to help us grow. Uh, when we read the word, we start to see him protect Israel and these just miraculous things, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover, all these things. We see, wow, God is powerful. He is faithful. He accomplishes his purposes. We see the coming of the Messiah, 
You know, we see it from Genesis 3.15 that this Messiah is going to come thousands of years before he comes. Then Isaiah speaks as if he's already there 700 and some years before, and we see that he is faithful to provide the Savior. Then we see him build and protect his church in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and throughout the letters of Paul. And then finally, we see him in the book of Revelation that he will take his church to the end. He will save his church. He will carry them on for all eternity, and he will have ultimate victory over Satan and his demons. My friends, the Word of God will help your faith. Number two, by asking God directly through prayer. This is going to Jesus and asking him to help you. We see this, even the apostles do this, Luke 17, 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. These are the apostles, and at this point in Luke's gospel, we're fast-forwarding a few chapters here. They've cast out demons. They've healed people. They've done some amazing things. They've went out and shared the gospel in very hard-to-reach places, and even they realize their faith is insufficient. Lord, increase our faith. We've just seen the Father do this, right? I believe, help my unbelief. We need to ask him to increase our faith. Number three, by observing God's power through creation. By observing God's power through creation. We see this in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Our faith can be increased just by looking at creation, looking at the atmosphere, looking at how blue the sky is. Why is it so pretty? Because God made it that way. Why are the landscapes so beautiful? Because God created it that way. Why is gravity the exact 9.8 9.8 meters per second squared it needs to be to keep us on earth without blowing us up. You know, why, why is everything right in the world as far as how things work? Obviously, we know sin has entered the world. A lot of things are wrong, but there is enough right to be able to look around and say, wow, this is an ordered universe. Things were not just by happenstance. They happened because a creator created it. Just like when we see a computer, as we mentioned before, we don't think somebody just It just happened. We know that somebody created the computer because there is a computer. There must be a computer creator. There is a world, so there must be a world maker. There is a person, so there must be a person maker. That increases our faith as well. Number four, lastly, but certainly not an exhaustive list. We could talk about this forever. Number four, by meeting together regularly with other believers. By meeting together regularly with other believers. The believers, Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as some, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I know a lot of you who have been here for a while, you're like, man, he, he loves that verse, Hebrews 10, 25. Well, here's the thing. We can't be encouraging each other to pushing each other to further faith. We can't be holding each other accountable. We can't be loving each other, being there for each other unless we're meeting together. So it's so important that we are worshiping God together. We can spur one another to greater faith. When you see God working in somebody else's life, when I see God intervene in Brother Adam's life or Brother Lee or, or anyone here and I see God come through, it increases my faith. I'm like, wow, look at what God did in their life. When I see God save somebody's family member, I'm like, wow, that's just amazing. God can save anyone. God can do that. And it increases my faith. We're well, getting back to our account. We left off with his father desperately begging Jesus to heal his son. So let's read verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. These are the nine disciples that were left behind. So now we're told that Jesus isn't the first person that this man, this father, had approached regarding this demonic possession of his son. He'd actually approached the nine disciples that were left behind. And if you recall, 
these guys should have been able to handle such a task. We see in Luke 9.1, the beginning of the chapter we're in, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over what? All demons. Not just some. All demons and to cure diseases. So note they've been given the power and authority to, to, to cast out all demons, but yet they fell short here. It is clear that these disciples had quickly forgotten where their help comes from. All of a sudden, they started working in their own power. Do we do that sometimes? We forget where our help comes from. We forget who has allowed us to do what we've done, and so we start to do that. Well, these disciples were no better. They, they had done some amazing things, and it kind of went to their head a little bit, and they stopped working in the power of God. In Mark, they actually asked Jesus why they couldn't do this, and Jesus says this in Mark 9, 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In essence, it was the power of God that they needed. They needed to go to him and cast this demon out. They'd begun to work on their own power and authority instead of God's. How quickly we can forget where our help comes from, right? Do your best to remain humble. Uh, fight against the pride that wants to do it your way is the late Frank Sinatra so convincingly saying, right? Proverbs 14, 12 actually goes well against that song. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but, but its end is the way to what? Death. How man likes to rail against God and do it his way but we know where that way leads. Jesus knows the wayward hearts of the surrounding crowd as well as his own disciples, and he, he laments for a moment as he quotes Deuteronomy 32.5. He says in verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He knows that he has somewhere between six to eight months left to disciple these disciples, and then he would be crucified, be gone. And he knows that he, that this generation is crooked and twisted, as Deuteronomy 32, 5 states. He knows they have a lot of growth to do. There's a struggle with unbelief. After rebuking the crowd, especially his disciples, he tells the father to bring the boy over. And this is where we get to verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father and all we're astonished at the majesty of God. In today's world, there are many who will read this and say, oh, this was a seizure disorder. Jesus healed this boy of a seizure disorder. As a physician, I can understand that that would be someone's opinion. At first glance, they would say, oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm not aware of any seizure disorders that respond only to Jesus. You know, he's the inciting event. What we see here is this boy is walking toward Jesus. The Spirit sees Jesus and does what? throws him down. This is a demonic possession. This is much bigger than epilepsy. This is much bigger than that. And Luke, who, who writes this book, is a physician. Remember that. And he's not saying this guy has a seizure disorder. He's saying, no, this guy has a demon, and Jesus casts this demon out. And we're told in only a sentence that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And just like that, the chaotic scene is serene again. But Jesus doesn't revel in his victory. He doesn't spend some time being like, yeah, I'm the man. Look at what I did. And he gets right back to work and training his disciples, which brings us to our second point. We must work understanding Christ's plan. We must work understanding Christ's plan. I'm going to read the second half of 43 through 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The nine disciples left behind have just failed this test miserably. They, they could not cast this demon out. Now they're arguing with the scribes whenever Jesus comes down. It's just been an ugly scene. Jesus knows that the time is short, and he tells them to pay attention. He tells them again, for a second time already here, that he will be crucified, that he will be taken. He will be delivered into the hands of men. He foretells his death. Yet the disciples fail again to understand the plan of God. They're still not in step with God. They're even afraid to ask him about the saying it all together. Now this can be a confusing couple of verses here as we kind of read through it. It's like, well, Jesus has been clear. He said, hey, this is what's going to happen, and they're still completely clueless. And we're like, well, why are they still so far off at understanding the plan of God? We're told here that the plan of God was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Well, why is Jesus telling them if it's concealed from them? Well, there's a lot of, lot of ideas there of why that might be with God's sovereignty, different things like that. But the most obvious cause is they did not understand how the cross could fit into the plan of God that they had in their mind and their heart. Uh, they, they saw Jesus coming to take over the government, right? We see that's why Judas kind of bounces. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm not liking the way this train is going. I'm going to go a different direction. They had high aspirations of him taking charge of the world. We'll see later they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that, that Jesus brings. And so there, these preconceived ideas cloud their, their, their ability to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, their unbelief and their pride that we'll see exposed shortly and weak faith kept them from understanding the plan of God. They were unwilling and unable to see God's plan because they had their own plan in mind. Can we do that sometimes? God has a plan for us, but we have our own plan. We don't ask God what he wants us to do. We're like, I'm going to do this. And, and how many times we look at young people and we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm guilty of that too. That's not the right question. What does God want you to be when you grow up? What has is, what is God sovereignly gifted you with the ability to do? And how's he going to use that for his glory? Not what do you want to do with your life, not how much money you want to make, not where you want to live. Where does God want you to be? We need to train our children that way because here's what Proverbs 19.21 says. Many of the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. If we want our purposes, our, our plans to stand, they must be the same plans of the Lord. I was in pre-med, and tons of people were in pre-med. I can't tell you how many people were in my classes, and everybody was going to be a doctor. That was just, that was their plan. I get to medical school, most of them are gone. They didn't make it that far. Well, why was that the case? Were, were they seeking the Lord's plan, or were they just wanting to make money? Were they just wanting to be a doctor and be respected and be that? We, we do what we do not because of ourselves and what we can get out of it. We do it because it's what the Lord calls you to do, equips you to do, and gives you the ability to do. We need to do everything for his glory, not for our own. We can take note, note of this as a church as well as individual homes as well as we look at Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This does not just speak of literal houses or places of worship. It also refers to anything we endeavor or accomplish. You can spend all the time that you want to in the books and go after a certain career, and guess what? You can fall right on your face. You could be the smartest one in your class, and God may not open that door because that's not the plan he has for you. It may, it may not work out. So you need to seek him, ask him what he wants for you. And that's one thing about being a believer. Once you've signed up to be a believer, 
you, you sign up to be a believer, and he will make you miserable whenever you're not doing what you're supposed to do. His discipline is sure. It will happen. I've had, like I've said many times, I've had the two-by-four to the back of my head many, many times, sometimes daily, because I, I, I'm stubborn. I start going the way I want to go, and God has to pull the reins back, take me behind the woodshed, give me a couple of paddles, and then put me back out. I praise God for his discipline. He's kept me from so much pain and struggle from doing that, and I thank you, thank him so much. I could have kept myself from a lot of other pain and struggle if I would have just listened in the first place or sought him, but do as I say, not as I do, right? That's it. We are, I'm just one sinner saved by grace just like we all are, and I praise God that he is merciful, that he forgives our sin, that he loves us, and that's the beauty of the gospel. We're not going to do it all right. We're going to make wrong decisions. We're going to blow it. We're going to, some of us even marry the wrong person. And I, when I say marry the wrong person, I don't mean once you are married, that's the right person. You know, that, that, that once you've made that commitment, that is who you love and you cherish. And obviously there's reasons for divorce. We can talk about that. That's a whole other sermon. But some of us maybe don't research enough. We don't, we don't, we're unequally yoked. We maybe do that. But you know, the beauty of God is he forgives us for our sins and he can redeem anything. He can save anyone. And so we pray hard for people who may aren't, maybe aren't believers. Some of us get saved afterwards and we kind of are stuck in that. But God is so gracious. He's so merciful. Some of us take that job we shouldn't have taken and it keeps us from our families and it, and it causes some issues. And then we ha- kind of have that midlife crisis where like, what, what did we do wrong? But that's the beauty of the gospel. We're going to mess up. We're going to do wrong. But because of the cross and what Jesus did for us, he redeems us. We're now not seen as just a sinner saved by grace. We're seen as holy and blameless because of what Jesus did for us. And I thank him so much for that because I know where my heart is much of the time. And it does not deserve salvation. But God loves us while we were still sinners. He died for us. Praise the Lord for that. And he is willing to redeem us. He's willing to deliver us. And even after we've made many mistakes, he'll take us and he'll put us on the path and continue to help help us and walk with us. Praise God for his grace. Next we see, number three, we must work with Christ's passion. We must work with Christ's passion. Let's read verse 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So this has been a series of unfortunate events as we've seen so far. The disciples have kind of blown it a couple of times already. They don't understand the plan of Jesus. He says he's going to die on the cross. They're like, dude, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, they, they, they couldn't cast this demon out. And now we see, just when you think they should have been humbled by now, they, they've been beat up by a demon, possessed man, or boy, actually. Uh, they, they, they've been uh, completely clueless of the plan of God. And now what are they doing? Which one of us is the greatest? We don't know exactly what this argument looks like. Is it the highest rank? Is it the most important disciple, the MVD, most valuable disciple? I, I, I'm not sure where they're at at this point. Sorry, that's, that's my, that's my sport, sports analogy coming out there. That, that wasn't actually written. That was, that was off the plot. Um, but but, but what, what, what I love is this comes right after nine of them just got whooped. You know, I mean, like, you think this is the beauty of human nature, and I'll say it's actually the curse of human nature. When we are humbled by our circumstances, how do we respond? You know, hopefully we would respond humbly and say, Lord, help me. But usually what we do is we just muster up enough pride to make up for that. 
right? Like, you know, it, it, you see this in schools. You know, you get, you get this person that maybe sh- more hum- should be humble than certain things. Maybe they're not doing that well in school. And so they just come bully and start beating people up. Like, they're just going to make up for their, their, their short shortcomings by, by pride. And that's kind of how we do it sometimes as humans. And so here these guys are. They've just been proven to be inadequate. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. None of them understand the plan of God completely here. They, they've just not been able to cast out a demon. And so they're arguing over who the best is. Maybe it was who's going to be at the, the greatest in the future kingdom of God. Whatever it is, these men knew that they were special. And in, in essence, they, they were in some ways. Uh, Jesus had actually prayed about who to choose in Luke chapter 6, 12 through 16. They'd been sent out at the beginning of this chapter, given authority to cast out demons and heal people in Luke 9, 1 through 6. Yet this amazing privilege had gone to their heads. All of a sudden, they made the, much of themselves instead of much of Jesus. They loved them some of them. Anybody met people like that? They love them from them? I hope you're not that person. And if you don't know anybody like that, maybe you are that person. You need to repent and talk to somebody about that. So, so we should not be someone who just loves us some us. We should love Jesus. Their, their passion became about their own glory and how great that they were instead of how great God was and to glorify God. And my friends, we must work through Christ's passion. And what was Christ's passion? It was for the Father. Look at John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus did everything in obedience to the Father and to glorify the Father. He did not live for worldly passions. His passion was for the Father and to do His will. John 6, 38. We have much to learn from Jesus in this. And I love the quote from theologian R. Kent Hughes. True greatness is the antithesis or the opposite a big word, antithesis, of pride and exclusivity. True greatness is the antithesis of pride and exclusivity. We live in a world where those that we consider great are like the men and women out there talking about how great that they are. I'm the most beautiful. I'm the smartest. I'm the strongest. I'm the most brilliant. And those people were like, well, they're great. You listen to, to sports people after they win something. Yeah, I knew I was the best. I knew it. I mean, you know, I knew I was the greatest out there. And we consider those people great at what they do, but they are failures in God's eyes because true greatness is the antithesis of pride and exclusivity. Those who are great before the Lord are those who are humble. Getting back to verses 47 through 48, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to, him, said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is one who is great. We see that this argument doesn't catch Jesus off guard. He sees it coming. And he understands the reasoning of their hearts, which means that he understands their thoughts. He understands what, where they're at. And he has a beautiful answer. He takes this child and lets him know that anyone who receives a child, like he would receive me, receives God as well. Those who consider themselves first are actually last. Those who are last are first and the greatest. Jesus again turns human nature completely upside down. We look at our culture, he turns it completely upside down. And the fact that he took this child is just a great magnitude, example of the magnitude of this this, uh, teaching. Uh, Children were loved, but children didn't have near the high view that we see today in our culture. Uh, Today, uh, unlike today's culture that practically worships their children to the expense of their marriage, going into huge debt for quote-unquote supposed happiness of children, 
Jewish culture took that pendulum the opposite way. Actually, in the rabbinical teachings of the Talmud, they regarded spending time with children as a waste of time. Sorry, kids. In fact, we see the disciples obviously meet this as well in Luke, or miss this as well in Luke 18, 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. That's a waste of time. Kids are a waste of time. That is where the Jews were. Obviously, we should be somewhere in the middle. Kids aren't something we worship. Kids also aren't a waste of time. Kids are a blessing from God, a heritage from the Lord, as the word says. We should love our children, but not as idols. We should raise them to worship the one who deserves glory and honor, and they're not the ones that the world revolves around. Jesus is. So let's make sure they know that. That's a sermon for another day. Uh, Jesus wants his disciples and even us today to understand what makes a woman great is not their power, their fame, their money, their influence. What makes a man or woman great is their humility, their servanthood, their love for God, and their passion for the things of God. Maybe work with Christ's passion. And finally, last point, we must work understanding Christ's purposes. Christ's purposes. Read 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So during this rapid-fire succession of moral failures experienced by his disciples, we see one more, and it's tribalism that man so so often likes to embrace. Jesus calls out this man who is casting out demons because he's not one of the disciples. He's not one of us. Who's this guy? I think he is. Then Jesus rebukes John for doing this and the disciples. It's clear that by Jesus' rebuke that this man was actually a true follower of Christ that was casting out the demons because we actually see what happens to non-Christian exorcists. You'll get a little kick out of this. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. I don't really need to preach this. It's just funny to read. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, obviously that means unbelievers. They're Jews who just want to have some power. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the men in whom the evil spirit, and and the man in whom the evil spirit, I can't read it, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Wow. All right. So we see what happens to those who aren't true followers of Jesus and try to use the name of Jesus as this magic word. It's not real effective. I wouldn't suggest, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't suggest going around trying that. doesn't turn out too well. They actually took quite a beating. So it's clear this person is a true follower of Jesus. He wasn't one of the twelve. And shortly after this, we're actually going to see in, in chapter 10 that Jesus is going to send out actually 72 followers to share the gospel of the nations. And Jesus wanted them to know this is an exclusive club. Yes, you all will become the apostles, minus Judas, plus Paul and Matthew. Uh, they're, they're going to become the apostles that, that are the, the foundation of the church. But although not every follower is given the ability to cast out demons, the Holy Spirit was still gifting certain followers with different gifts at that time. We see in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and, and, and so forth. Although the Holy Spirit had not fallen like Pentecost, we'll see and, and later in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit fall. He was still working amongst followers of Christ. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit began indwelling believers as a permanent seal of their salvation, as Brother Lee talked about today, this morning. I was giving him a hard time about reading my notes before, because he always seems to, to, to quote me at some point. 
uh, what I'm about to say. Um, so we see that in Ephesians 1, 13, 4, 30, and Acts 2. But prior to this, believers had the Holy Spirit rest upon them. We see that many times in the Old Testament. The, Holy, the Spirit of God was upon this man. The Spirit of God was upon this man. And it was different than we have today where he, he indwells us. We are the temple of God. Praise God for that. We even see this in Jesus where Jesus is God. He doesn't need to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit because he is God. But what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit descend upon him to help guide and minister him while on earth. But getting back to our point, we understand Christ's purposes. He doesn't just do his work here at Cross Point. He doesn't just do his work through Southern Baptists. He doesn't just do his work in Winfield. He doesn't just do his work in West Virginia. He is working through his universal church. He is everywhere at once. How amazing is that? We were talking about that during growth group too. That, that, that Jesus is everywhere at once. He's not just working in Winfield. He's working in Africa and Asia. He is everywhere. Although it is clear we're not to approve of false teachers and those who lead others astray, we are to pray for those who may not be 100% on board with where we're at on things. Sadly, Christians are undercutting each other left and right. This tribalism has taken such a root in our culture. Our social media has poured gasoline on the proverbial fire of our disagreements. And so there's divisions over even the most minute of details. Church, we need to have strong convictions where we are theologically. We hold the Bible as a literal word of God. We, we have a literal interpretation of the Bible. Absolutely. We need not act like tertiary or secondary even matters are not important because they most certainly are important. Uh, many of these secondary tertiary doctrines may keep people from being able to fellowship in the same body of believers, but that does not mean we cannot be part of the universal church. Just because there is a disagreement between what we consider a big theological disagreement does not mean they're a heretic. It does not mean they're going to hell. My best friend's a PCA pastor, and he baptizes babies. I still love the guy. We're not going to be dunking babies at Crosspoint. But, but, but he is a believer. You know, we have disagreements. But we can still, I can still pray for him. We can still pray for our brothers and sisters who have some different doctrines than we do. Now, we need to be firm on what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is very clear about baptism, being a believer's baptism. We don't necessarily have to act like theology doesn't matter because it does matter so much. But we can still love those who may disagree with us. While we hold the word of God with both truth and grace, confident in the things of God and who God is, but grace knowing that we need to love our brothers and sisters as we seek to obey him. Now, today we've seen Christ disordered disciples. They've blown it multiple times, and we can learn a lot from their failures because we've probably done some of these things too with our doubts and our struggles. But I pray that we fully rely on Christ's power and not our own that we seek to understand God's plan and not follow our own ways, that we work with Christ's passion, not making much of ourselves, but making much of him. And finally, that we work understanding the purposes of God, which means reaching the far ends of the earth with the gospel while maintaining unity whenever we're able. Friends, let's be disciples of Christ that he has called us to be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this has been a lot of, of just meat inside of here. Um, just a lot of things for us to focus in on in our own lives. God, first and foremost, may we, may we understand the gospel. May we, may we know whether we are saved or not, whether we've repented or turned from our sins or not. God, I pray that if anyone here has not done so, I'd love to talk with them about it. Lord, help us to spend this time in reflection 
over your word. May you change us from the inside out. We love you, Lord. And amen.